So fear not. I'm wondering what, if you've ever seen someone that just has a look of, of fear, or what fear or, or terror looks like. I, I have a very distinct memory in my head. Most of you know that I have a younger sister. Um, she attends here at the Capital Turnaround location. And she's, she's quite a bit younger than me. She's um, a little more than nine years younger than me. So what that means is that when I was in high school and kind of going through all of the you know, high school things, she was quite a bit younger. She was just a, a young little thing. And you know, I actually felt like, gosh, you know, she was the baby of the family. I always felt like she was maybe being you know, treated extra sensitively or those things. And, and there was also a lot of awkward situations where you know, she would be peering through the front window at me as I was with friends or whatever. And so there was a situation when I was in high school that I was, uh, I was invited to the movies with a boy. And I think back then we called it um, going around. I think that's what it was called. <laughs> I was thinking about that last night. But I was invited to the movie with a boy. The only problem was that I had been asked by my parents to watch my little sister that day. So, you know, no problem. I figured a way that I would handle this. I just, I decided that I would um, just bring her to the movies with us. You know, there would be popcorn and candy and that would be fun and that would be fine. The only problem is that the movie that he had decided to see, it was the first release, this might date me, of Jurassic Park. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, at first it was going fine until, until the T-Rex, until the, you know, my sweet, I think we have a picture of my little, very sweet, innocent little, I know, I know. I'm embarrassed to even tell you, and I do think, I mean, just the terror, the horror. At first, she was just, you know, kind of hiding behind the seat, but eventually it was like full scream. I would like to inform you that I did leave the movie theater at that time. I did leave the theater, and I do believe that I have redeemed myself as a sister since then. Um, but that was when I just saw fear at its fullest. And perhaps I felt fear at its fullest. My face probably looked similar when I had to explain to my parents that I had done that with my younger sister. So this was maybe her worst case scenario, right? Her scariest moment, at least at that time, her worst case scenario. And today we are going to look in the scriptures at someone who faced their worst case scenario. And, um, you know, we've been walking through the, the Christmas series, through the, the Christmas story, and looking at different, you know, characters and kind of their, um, the part that they played, these individuals in, in the story. And this particular individual, um, Joseph, Right, the earthly father of Jesus faced his worst case scenario. He was told by the angel, of course, do not be afraid. But do not be afraid of what? Little did we know that he was about to, little did he know that he was about to face, I mean, just the hardest situation of his life. So you know, we're we're preparing to pre- we're preparing our hearts for Christmas. And you know, at Christmas we we talk a lot, particularly when we're talking with kids about just the coming of Jesus and the birth of Jesus. But really, what we're celebrating is so much bigger than that, right? It's God's answer of full redemption for His people, yeah. and the way that He would do it in such a surprising place. So we're going to start. And I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Matthew, the first chapter of Matthew. And because I do work with young people a lot, actually, um, and I've shared with you that I came from you know a, a home that didn't go to church, and so I actually remember. Um, going to the Bible store in, in, you know, high school. Back then you had to like go to the Christian bookstore and buying the little tabs of the Bible so I could clip them to the chapters of my Bible because I would be embarrassed in church when we were told to turn somewhere and I didn't necessarily know 
where to turn. And so I, and actually now most of us use our phones or our apps, but I actually do tell young people quite often, um, when I tell them to turn in the Bible, I will tell them how and where, even my kids. So of course, Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, so usually you can go right to the middle and open it and find it pretty easily there, beginning of the New Testament. And, and Matthew begins with a, the genealogy of Jesus. And you know, this maybe isn't, for some of us, maybe the most powerful way to start. Probably, if we're honest, most of us skip through it or read through it quite quickly. And particularly because, you know, um, the, the Gospels begin after what's called the, the, the 400 years of silence. And what that means is that from the, the end of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New Testament, there were 400 years that, as, you know, as far as we know, God didn't speak or at least no scripture was written. And so, you know, to start with the genealogy, we have to think, well, well why did he begin here? And he began here because he is painting the picture for us of Jesus as the Messiah, right? He's painting the lineage to show us that he came from the line um, of David, and that was a fulfillment of prophecy. So um, we're going to begin in Matthew 1, 18, and this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. So that's when we first see and come across Joseph here. And it's, it's interesting because for, for young people, for, you know, kids that, that grow up in the, the church or maybe not, like, they're very familiar with Joseph, even though um, he really is not mentioned outside of, any time in the Gospels, outside of the birth story. And it's just a few couple places, but, but very familiar with just the key role that he plays and as they learn the, the nativity story. But um, we, Matthew will tell us two things about Joseph, and we learn two things that we know for sure about Joseph. One, that he was a carpenter, and two, that he was a righteous man. And I think sometimes we can get mixed up about when we read that he was a carpenter, we have our kind of impression or understanding of what that, that meant. But in, but in first century Israel, carpenter actually, you know, we might think of like a, a manual, um, you know, labor, but, but actually more like, think more like an artisan, or a tradesman. And in, in the first century, um, every father had two responsibilities, and that was to every Jewish father to teach his a child Torah and to, to um, teach him a trade or a craft. In fact, um, because work was seen as a way of maybe spiritual elevation, even a, a craft like a, like a carpenter was actually, um, it was, it was you know, seen as even a path spiritually. So, so, um, you know, when we're hearing that he's a carpenter, we might kind of brush through that and not kind of lean into the, the evidence that that's, that's teaching us or showing us about Joseph as really a, a learned man. And then it says that he was a righteous man, and, and we'll, we'll read a little bit later in, in the scriptures how, um, you know, different words that are, are, that are used in our English translation for righteous man, but the Hebrew word, um, sadiq, it means uh, that he was not only pious, and we can see evidence of his piety, but also just a learned sage, maybe even a teacher of the law. And there is a lot of evidence over the rest of the New Testament of just how um, committed to the law both Mary and Joseph were, right? We see that, that, that and that can give us evidence to how we really believe that, that Joseph, he, he taught Jesus much of what he knew about the scriptures and the law. And when we, we see it at 12 years old, he was found in the temple, um, speaking with the religious leaders, and it says that they were amazed at his knowledge. And then, of course, we know that Mary and Joseph, they traveled to the temple at, at 40 days so that Mary could, um, you know, pr present herself at, uh, for her purification, and Joseph could make the ransom payment for his firstborn son. 
and they didn't have to do that. Actually, most um, women, because it was such a, a long journey to present yourself at the temple, most would wait until they'd had a number of children or all of their children before they would travel. And Joseph could have, could have paid that ransom for a first son to any priest locally, but because um, of just their you know, deep duty to the law, went right away. So very, very strict interpretation and very devout followers. So I, I think that lays a little bit of groundwork of what we kind of know about him as, as an individual. Um, you know, I believe, at least for me, who's a parent, kind of, you know, leans into some of that and thinks, gosh, really the responsibility that I have to just to teach my children the wisdom of God and the scriptures and how to, you know, pursue him in that way. So continuing on in Matthew 1.18, uh, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. So she was engaged to be married, and some translations actually say betrothed. And actually, this um, it's actually it's a stronger understanding than maybe our understanding of engagement. It's almost as though you really are already married. Just the difference is you, you, you may not engage in any sexual relations that would be considered immoral until after you are married. So for her to be found pregnant really was a scandal, a disgrace. In fact, um, Roman law required that men divorce their fiance or their wife in that situation. Jewish law actually allowed for the death penalty. In Deuteronomy 22, 23, it says, if a betrothed virgin met a man and lies with him, the two of them are to be stoned. So we don't know just in the text um, what Joseph thought. Like, did he think that she had been unfaithful or that maybe she had been violated by a Roman soldier? We don't know. But we do know that Joseph did have the ability to go as far as having her stoned. And really, in doing so, could do anything that he needed to do to preserve his own reputation. So it says, because, in verse 19, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, other translations will say, because he was a righteous man, yet he did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. So out of a desire to not disgrace her publicly. So this is before that he had heard from the, the angel, right? To protect, um, he, had a, he was taking steps, had a plan to protect her despite his saving his own reputation and choosing to deal with the matter um, privately. And, and we see that he displays just an incredible compassion, incredible grace. And I have to fast forward thinking just to other stories that come then in the New Testament where we see Jesus then engage with just such compassion and such grace, right? There's the, the woman at the well and where he, he speaks to her with such grace that she'd really never experienced. Then there is the, the woman who's caught in adultery and where he actually kind of stands in the gap for her then to the religious leaders saying, let he who is a without, you know, among you without sin, cast the first stone. And you have to wonder, at least I wonder, in any of those situations, was he thinking of his own mother? 
did he ponder or, or were there any situations where she had faced any sort of um, implications of that story or, or you know, what people knew about her circumstance or situation? And were there situations, how much did he know about his, his father, his earthly father standing in the gap in protection of her or leaning towards her? And so we have to look ahead at that and think, you know, um, did Jesus not only know that from his connection to our heavenly father, but had he seen that kind of grace and compassion modeled for him. You know, Jesus, or Joseph isn't referenced um, at all in Jesus's ministry or um, really any part beyond the birth story. And so we would probably have to assume that he had, had passed away then, that he had died. And, and so he didn't necessarily see um, this ministry come to fruition. And, and, and yet his compassion, his grace, his integrity does live on and is represented in the story of Jesus, I believe. And I actually, I know what that um, is like to, to be able to experience the grace and the compassion of, of someone kind of beyond their um, time. I mean, my, my father-in-law has such an incredible like legacy of integrity. And um, many of you got to hear stories about him in this, in this church. And so often, maybe because we share the same last name, and I stopped, and someone will will share a story of the way that he impacted them, or, or, um, and of course, I just see his you know fingerprints over who we are, even as a as a church today, and um, so much that I even sometimes forget I actually didn't get to meet him myself because his legacy lives so so strongly, and and um, I think that's that is a something for us to reflect on ourselves. Is what does it look like for our own? Um, walking and representing Christ, for that to live in such a way that it would live even beyond us generationally and our family and the things that we invest in and that we, um, that, that, that we care for. So um, we see the imprint and investment of Joseph through the life of Jesus, a legacy that kind of lives, lives in him. And I think we do have to pay attention to the kind of earthly father that, that the Lord chose so even before he was prompted by an angel, Joseph showed the grace and the compassion. And, and um, when we were, you know, laying out, looking at the kind of the weeks of this, this message, and I saw, gosh, you know, I, I was going to be speaking on Joseph, and then Joel next week would be on Mary. And I, I, for a moment I thought, you know, should we maybe, like, should we switch that? I mean, would it make more sense if I, like, spoke about the woman and he spoke about the man? And, and um, I actually felt very prompted in my spirit that, that no, this was just as it should be, and that perhaps I even would have something to share as a woman about Joseph. And we know that that um, when the role of women in first century was much different than it is today, right? And 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 the way that a woman was vulnerable or, or her role in society was much different. But I would contend that actually there is a vulnerability amongst women even now today, and and probably in a way that sometimes we're a little bit hesitant to speak about. And it really is a very short history that women even have some of the, the rights that we even have. It's, it's barely 100 years that we could even vote in this country. You might not even know this, but it's only been since 1974 that women could even have a credit card in their own name or could buy a home in their own name. So I would contend that there is still a vulnerability that we as women have, and of course physically, um, so when I read a story of someone like Joseph, someone that at his own um, risk, his own detriment, was willing to stand in the gap on behalf of someone um, more vulnerable, that actually 
strikes a deep affection in me. And I just want to say to you, to my, to my brothers in this house, of really the incredible opportunity that you have in our faith community to stand in the gap on behalf of, of women and to lend your, your strength and your voice and maybe even your privilege on behalf of women um, around you. And that, that there will at some point and maybe many points be an opportunity professionally or relationally or in your community that God might call on you um, to do that. And I just want to tell you um, that what a precious gift that is to our communities and that I believe that the Lord is honored by it. So we are raising um, a son ourselves. I consider it an awesome responsibility. In fact, um, if we were speaking about fears, I might share with you that um, I grew up in a family where the, the um, women have always been really you know, strong, and, and, um, but the men raised in our family have always struggled a little bit and um, struggled a little bit to have their feet under them and, and struggled a little bit um, just in life choices and those things. And so when I... Um, found to, that I had had a son, I actually, I've, there is probably some fear that I navigate in that. Do I have the tools to, um, to raise a man of God? And I'm so grateful to be in a church community with just such incredible men that, that live their lives with such integrity. So I just want to tell you that it matters. Um, I have the most incredible faithful husband, and I will tell you that we are, we are really, and we're in the hard years, I would say, of parenting teenagers. It's really um, every day you're maybe doubting who you are, and he just shows up so faithfully every day, continually. Um, and we, and um, so many of the, the dads and, and the men and the mentors and the uncles and all that in this community, it really, really does matter. So thank you, Joseph, for your example, and um, all the men that, that are a part of the church family, my prayers um, cover you as well. But that was not the culture that Joseph knew. And yet before he had even heard a word from the angel, he'd already decided to take steps to be as merciful towards Mary as possible. And that was the man that the Lord chose to be Jesus' earthly father. So in Matthew 20, it says, as he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. So Matthew not only informs us what Jesus or what Joseph does in response, but he describes actually his feelings. And he learned that his, his fiancée was present. It says, as he considered this, most of us read that as, as he thought about it, as he pondered it. But actually that, that word, um, the Greek word, enthumeomai, it actually has two meanings. One of them is pondered or considered or thought about. But the other one actually means angry, that he fumed. Actually, the root of that root, the root of that word in the Gospels in Luke four is used to describe the wrath of the congregation as they rose up to stone Jesus. And the only other time that it's used is when it describes the feelings of Herod when he learned that the Magi had returned a different way than coming back through him was mad, fumed. So I think we can actually read that. So Joseph, while full of compassion, grace, already taking steps to do things graceful, did actually have deep anger hurt, frustration. So after he had considered this, after he had fumed of this, of course, that's a fair response, right? Betrayal, hurt, maybe even embarrassment. So after he considered this, fumed about this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid of what? Of, well, of losing everything, right? Potentially his business, his family, his reputation, his name. I mean, do not be afraid of losing everything. 
And I think we have to think about that when we're pondering and considering what it is. I mean, Pastor Mark really prompted us that, that our fears reveal some things about us. They reveal some of the depths of our, our fears and, and where our fears lie are just maybe give indicators to us of the things that we treasure most. And many times the things that we fear, it's that. It's the, the loss of those things and where we take steps to maybe protect those. So um, maybe you've had to face a fear like that, right? A, a worst case scenario. The show This Is Us, if, you're, if you've ever watched the show This Is Us, I'm, I don't actually um, get to watch, I don't watch many TV shows, but that one I got hooked on maybe a couple of years ago. And the main character, um, one of the main characters, he deals with deep anxiety. And um, his way, one of his ways of, he, sometimes it even leads to panic attacks, and one of the ways that he and his, his um, wife navigate that is they do this thing where they play this like what if game. Well, they'll start to say, okay, well, what if that happened? And, and well, what if that happened? And what if that happened? And they carry it to its worst possible scenario as a way of actually trying to, to you know, process the fear, which I was so fascinated by that because that's actually, um, that's, that's how I sometimes process my biggest anxieties and have for years and years is I start to think, well, okay, so what if that happened? And what if that happened? Okay, at the end of the day, I will still be okay. The Lord will still be with me. That would really be terrible. But... Um, so, so the worst case scenario, right? We're processing the worst case scenario and, and you know, what, is, what would it be like to trust in the Lord kind of in the midst of that worst case scenario? And how do we respond in the face of our deepest, deepest fear? So how does Joseph respond? Well, it says, when Joseph woke up, verse 24, he did as the angel commanded. Immediate obedience. And that's my question for us today. In, in the face of our deepest fear, the worst case scenario, could we respond with immediate obedience? I want to just pause for just a second and take a reflection on if you kind of read all of the places that Joseph is mentioned in these first two chapters of Matthew, it really would only take a couple of minutes. But if you stop and pause, it's interesting to note that each of the times that the Lord spoke to him, each of the times is through a dream. And I, I, that was really kind of interesting in a new way to me this last you know, week. And, and I've always been a little bit fascinated with dreams and maybe how the Lord kind of speaks to us in that way. Partially because I have this very strange thing where it, the, the time in between my sleep and wakefulness is this really intense time of clarity quite often. Um, it's a time where I just sometimes will hear directly from the Lord. A lot of times I sometimes call it the time of our hour of conviction because sometimes it's when I'll think of what I said the day before and I'm like, oh, why did I say that? And I have to kind of offer it or, you know, <laughs> to the Lord or, or repent or take action or some way. But but sometimes it is really a fresh revelation to a problem that I've been wrestling with for some time, or it's, it's um, something, you know, quite clear. Joel does not have this experience, actually, by the way, when I try to share it with him. He's like, no, it's a whole fog for, like, the first little bit of time. So, and then a number of years ago, there was a, a group of us that were traveling to Greece to work um, at the, we were working with refugees that were stuck at the border, having, you know, kind of been caught um, with nowhere to go as they were fleeing in the middle of the, the Syrian refugee crisis. And as we were preparing to go and maybe working with them, um, many of them who were Muslim, um, we were kind of learning from others uh, who were more, you know, experts with, with that, were sharing with us that, that actually many 
um, Muslims that are coming to faith are coming through revelation and dreams, are coming through um, God speaking to them in dreams. So since that time, that's been a number of years now, I actually pray that quite often, Amen. that God, would you reveal yourself Amen. to um, us or to those in our lives or in our communities or in the world through dreams? And in the most impossible situation, Lord, would you actually speak in dreams, in a revelation? So I do think it's actually, it's interesting to go back and kind of study. And in your message notes, I actually, I listed out on the app just each of the different times that we see that the Lord um, spoke to Joseph through a dream. So in Matthew 1, when we read first, when the angel appeared to the Lord, telling him that the pregnancy or the the pregnancy was of the Lord. Then in 2.13, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and warned him to escape to Egypt. In 2.19, after Herod had died, an angel appeared and told Joseph to now, in Egypt, told him to go to Israel. And then in 2.22, he was warned that, that he should withdraw to Nazareth. And that, of course, then fulfilled, um, fulfilled the prophecy that the Messiah would be a Nazarene. So, so God can speak to us in our dreams. And I actually think that we should be asking him to. And in those impossible situations, we should be asking him to reveal himself in dreams. So how did Joseph respond coming back to that? Well, he woke up and he like thought about it for a little while. Then he, you know, went to a few mentors and kind of wrestled the idea, you know, with them. And then he committed to a season of prayer to pray about whether or not that was really the angel or not the angel. No, at least that's not what it says, right? It says that when he woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded, and he took Mary as his wife. And I, I think this, that this is the word for us today, that God is asking us for a bold obedience, for an immediate obedience, and probably that if there's the potential that it will be scary and that it will cost us maybe everything. When we read ahead, though, if you go back to even those promptings, here's the key. Each of those times that Joseph did what he had been prompted in a dream, it says these words after, to fulfill, and so was fulfilled. I might contend that God is actually working a larger plan in our lives and that, that through our obedience, is he able to fulfill? I wouldn't say that God needs us to act in obedience for him to do what he's going to do, but we are invited into the opportunity to be a part of the story that he is writing. And I would say with Joseph, it wasn't a little story. It was a redemption of the entire world. It was one of God's greatest things that he would ever do, and it came through Joseph's obedience. I have to read them out loud. It says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, that the virgin would conceive. It says, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, that out of Egypt I called my, my son. Then it said what the prophet Jeremiah said, what the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled and finally, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. So was fulfilled. I don't know the story that he's writing through you. I don't know what he's trying to work in your, in, through the work that you feel called to or through your family or, or through whatever it is. But I do know that we are going to be prompted in something and it is going to be important that we walk in obedience so that he can fulfill. You know, and Joseph, as I said earlier, as far as we know, Joseph didn't get to see any of it. 
He didn't get to walk in the ministry. He didn't get to, to see the miracles happen. He didn't get to see the realization of Jesus as the Messiah. But he walked in obedience, and so it was fulfilled. It's one line, one takeaway. We have to do what he's prompting us to do. One of my first bosses as a young, like, 20-something working for Congress, um, he would tell all of us young staffers all the time, he would talk about how important our small decisions were. All the time would say, really how much of how we live out our lives, it all comes down to the small decisions. Fast forward a number of years as you start to see, you know, how many... (laughs) I don't know, scandals or misdecisions or, you know, things happen. I'm so grateful to have been under a leadership where they valued small decisions and valued the integrity of small decisions. So I would say that, that, that with Joseph, it was a very kind of bold obedience. There might be those moments. But what led to that is all the little things we talked about, the daily living out of honoring of God, the daily honoring of the law, the daily honoring to, to be unto the Lord rather than unto self, those little, little, little decisions that prepared him for that moment. So that's my prayer for myself. Is God, would you just help me with the little decisions to respond in obedience and to do the things that you prompt me to do when I feel prompted in a way that I would step in that direction. So I struggle with this. Um, I want to say that it's fear. It's probably just stubbornness. I actually wonder if we should call this stubborn not the series instead of fear not. But but my prayer for us is that we would ask the Lord to not let us be a barrier to his incredible, incredible plans. I know that I won't tell my children the nativity story again without telling, pausing to tell them about um, a man who at a severe cost to himself lived a life of such integrity and, and walked and responded with such quick obedience. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come. And as, as we close, I do, um, I, I just want to, you know, invite you to um, respond to the Lord and respond to his, his you know, promptings. And, and, you know, maybe it's just where you are. Maybe it's, it's coming forward, you know, this week, um, our staff, our church staff, actually gathered around these rugs, laid hands on them, prayed over them. Not just that these rugs in particular, but that this whole space, that this whole community would be a place where, where people would take bold steps in pursuit of the Lord. And I prayed the same prayer that I have actually prayed over this space for a really long, many, many times, which is one, that anything that is laid down here at the altar, here in this room that is laid down for the Lord would never be picked back up again. Amen. And that, Amen. that to any blessing that the Lord would have to give, it would not be left unclaimed. Yeah. I believe God is writing a story in your life that might not be fully realized for generations. I believe that there's words and whispers that he might want to speak to you in a dream or as you, as you go along, you'll, that you'll feel a prompting. And you might be like, Lord, is this one of the things you were talking about that I was just supposed to do right now even if it didn't make sense? A bold obedience, an immediate obedience 
to the promptings of the Spirit and the Lord. I believe God will be honored. So I'm just going to pray over you and pray. Um, We're going to sing a song where we actually get to call out the name of Jesus over the stuff that we're navigating and walking through. And we get to call out the name of Jesus into the places in our own lives um, where we need a different kind of confidence. So God, we just, um, well, we give thanks to the people that individuals through scriptures or in our lives or in our histories or in our communities uh, that model bold and immediate obedience to us, God. Would you give us courage? Courage in the face of fear. Courage in the face of stubbornness, God. I do pray for revelation and dreams, Lord. Particularly for those that will experience your grace, your love, relationship with you for the first time. Would this uh, Christmas season feel a little bit different, God? Would we actually feel emboldened and strength and encouraged to honor you with our response? And God, I believe that you will be pleased. In the name of Jesus, amen.